0: For those that came out yesterday and got out those flyers and I was just thinking of all the service that goes on here on a regular basis. In fact, let me just do this. If in the last month you've served in any way, that would mean setting up chairs or going out and handing out flyers or opening your home for a Bible study, any in any way at all, worship, music, setting anything like that, would you stand? Just for a moment. Just for a moment. Would you stand? See, that's a praise to God. Just, I, just, You can sit. You can sit. It doesn't happen without the body. It does not happen without the body. So I just really appreciate you all. I pray about you. I think about you. I love you. And I would ask you to invite someone to come with you next week. Invite someone to come with you who doesn't have a church or who doesn't know the Lord or has no connection with God. Invite them to come and sit under the Word of God and under uh, good music that worships our God and invite them to be a part of this community so that they can be exposed to our great God and Savior who we know. So I, I trust that you will do that in the coming weeks. Also, there was a men's night out this last Friday. I was not able to be there, but I believe it was... Good, right? And there was 15 of you men who showed up from this body. And so I would encourage you, it's every third Friday of the month. And men, for those of you that went, look around the room and find someone who did not go. And make sure you bring them. Okay, there's one right there. Make sure his wife was pointing him out. (laughs) Wow, okay. Love you, David. I know how it is, bro. I know how it is. So... Make sure you find somebody and have them come with you next time, okay? Don't miss out on those special opportunities. We only do it once a month because we know people's schedules and lives are very hectic and busy, but we don't want to miss out on that sweet fellowship and that time in the Word. So this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, let me just turn there and... That would be, if you're using one of those church Bibles, page 839 will bring you to Mark chapter 4 as we continue in this series through the Gospel of Mark. I titled the message today, Christian Confidence. Christian Confidence. During the first uh, part of the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, no safety devices were used. Can you believe that? And 23 men fell to their death. But someone got the idea it might be good to get some safety nets or something in there. And they took $100,000 and they installed a a safety net underneath the bridge. And 10 men fell into that net, but they did not die. What is interesting is that once the net was set up, you can just ignore that. Once the net was set up, 25% more work was accomplished during that period of time than prior to that. Now, that makes sense to me because these men who were working on in this very dangerous situation were now assured of their safety, right? And it makes a lot of sense to me. In my previous employment, I had the privilege of getting up on roofs occasionally. And most of the time, I did that <laughs> without safety equipment. In other words, I was not tied off. I didn't have a harness. But on occasion... I would take the extra steps and harness up and rope up. And what that did was it increased my confidence to work on the roof, right? I could spend more time on the roof. I could go places on the roof I wouldn't normally go. I could take greater risk on the roof. And I worked quicker and faster on the roof because I was not concerned about the consequences of slipping. So that that makes sense to me. I tell you that story... Because God's word, when properly understood and believed, is like a safety net. It is like a safety net. It gives Christians, it gives me, it can give you the confidence that we need, in a sense, to live on the edge. To live on the edge, to risk it all for Christ, to surrender all for Christ. Even, even being willing to place ourselves in situations that could be dangerous or would bring us pain, suffering, and even death. And even death. Because of our association with Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about death just for the sake of death. I'm talking specifically pain and suffering and the problems that are related to, specifically, directly to our stand, to our witness, to our testimony for Jesus Christ. The unbelieving world, beloved, thinks that this type of behavior is insane. The Christian behavior of living on the edge of living for this other world. They call it foolishness. They think it's inappropriate to live in that way. And the reason they do is because they don't see. They can't see what we see, what I see. The something greater, the something bigger, the something that inspires me, the something that makes sacrifice or suffering for Christ seem insignificant in comparison to the future treasures reserved for us. Paul says in Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 18, he says these words, For I, that is Paul, consider the sufferings. And when he's talking about sufferings, he is not talking about the normal suffering that every person experiences. Do you know whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, whether you acknowledge God or not, you're going to experience sickness. You're going to have car accidents. Your house is going to be foreclosed. on. I don't, I don't care, believer or unbeliever, living in a fallen world, you're going to suffer. But the suffering that the Bible talks about is not that type of suffering. It's always related to suffering because of their testimony for Jesus Christ. They stand for the light and darkness hates it. And the darkness comes and tries to put the light out. And so when Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings... That is the suffering that he had experienced for his testimony for Jesus Christ, for being an apostle and proclaiming Christ, for the beatings that he experienced, for the imprisonments, for the torture. All of that. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's what Paul says. He saw with eyes of faith that safety net that was waiting for him. And it allowed him to do things that most humans would just think is insane or crazy. So what is the something greater or the something bigger that we're looking for? It is this. It is the promise or guarantee of the coming of the kingdom of God. I've been hammering away at this kingdom of God stuff now for a couple of weeks. I've even recommended this book called The Greatness of the Kingdom by Alva J. McLean because sadly in many places no one is talking about the kingdom of the God. They're not talking about our future hope and eternal reward. No wonder Christians are paralyzed. They don't see the safety net that is there waiting for them to capture them and reward them. Having confidence, beloved, in the reality of God's future kingdom and not just that it's going to come, but you know that you're a citizen of that kingdom will give you the confidence and inspire you to stay focused in living for Jesus now, regardless of the current events, political or whatever is going on personally in your world for bad circumstances, knowing that the great reward and reality that awaits you and all who long for His return to establish His glorious rule and reign on this earth. However, to the degree that your vision, your faith vision, or hope for the kingdom diminishes is the degree that your fire or passion to serve God is dampened. And as a result, your service and your sacrifice for God is negatively impacted. And when I say you, I say me too. This is what I've experienced. When that vision dims for me, my passion for the Lord diminishes. A Christian's sight of their future home is not always 2020. Do you understand what I'm saying? Our vision is, is often poor in this regard. It's almost fuzzy. I can't really see it. Now I don't see it at all. And as a consequence, the Christian can become fearful in this present world fearful, not confident, discouraged lose focus, and fail to live for Christ, or even worse, fall into that counterproductive rut of living for this world, not just in it. As we look at this text today, we're going to get to it, we should note that Jesus knew that the future hope of the nation, that is Israel, was the promised kingdom of God. This is why context and history and understanding the full picture of the Word of God is so important. They were looking for, they were longing for, they were waiting for, they were anticipating the coming of the King, the Messiah, the Christ, and the establishment of that righteous, holy kingdom. As His disciples came to grip with the reality of his identity as the Christ and as the Christ that makes him the king of the kingdom, they would anticipate and expect Jesus to establish that kingdom on earth, right? That's what you would expect. But something happened. The nation's rejection of their king, which we've looked at over the past several weeks, the nation's rejection of their king would mean that the kingdom would not come immediately. It would not come immediately, but instead it would become a future reality to be fulfilled when Christ comes to the earth now for a second time, which is what we refer to as the second return of Christ. Two comings to the earth. That means there would be a delay, beloved, or a period of time that would take place on earth before this glorious kingdom would come. During this time, it is the time that you and I are living in right now. During this time, Jesus is building His church. His church is made up of men and women of all nations, of all nations who believe in and love Christ the King. The King then graciously grants and promises every one of those who love Him, His disciples, a citizenship in this future glorious earthly kingdom. And it is this hope, it is this hope, even you may not believe it now, it is this hope that will help the Christians stay grounded and remain hopeful and confident in a world that is insane insane beloved the context in mark chapter 4 to remind you in case you haven't been here or you've missed out over the past couple of weeks how you doing ray is rejection the context is rejection specifically rejection of jesus identity as the christ and specifically his message what message? The message he came proclaiming according to Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Well, just by way of reminder, his family is questioning his sanity. The religious leaders are plotting to kill him. And the demanding crowds are not repenting or believing. That's the context that we find this passage in Mark chapter 4. Rejection, rejection, rejection. Now, what are the few that have believed who are following to make of all this? That's the issue. That's what would be going on in their minds. Let me just pose some questions that they might be thinking. If he's the king, why aren't people responding appropriately? If he is the king. And remember when we looked at Mark chapter 4 verses 1 through 20, we examined the four soils. And I told you that he was now explaining, after his rejection had become certain, demonstrated by the leadership of Israel who represented the nation of Israel, he was explaining to them, this is why everyone hears, but not everyone has good soil. And so it does not produce fruit. And we went through the four types of soil. He's explaining now, he's helping them understand, this is why I know everyone's hearing me, but not everyone's responding And here's why. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. If he is the king, why doesn't he establish his kingdom, crush this rebellion, and declare his true authority over the earth? Why isn't he doing that? If he is the king of the great kingdom of God that was promised in the Old Testament, why are there so few of us? I mean, surely a few followers does not make up a powerful kingdom as was foretold in the Old Testament. So, Jesus is continuing through the use of parables to reveal to his disciples, because remember... He was telling them these things and explaining it to specifically, privately, his disciples so that they might know the mystery or the secrets of the kingdom. Those things not previously revealed in the Old Testament, but now would be revealed to them who have been prepared to understand it because the rejection of the king had become a historical reality in history. And now they are going to understand what God already knew that Jesus would be rejected and the kingdom would be rejected and He would come have to come again after a period of time to establish that kingdom after He prepares His people through a tribulation to receive that kingdom. That's the story. That's the big picture. He's going to help them to not grow weary or lose their confidence in the coming of the kingdom By continuing to give them these parables. And that's where we are in the text. Mark chapter 4, verse 26 through 29. That brings us to the first picture or illustration that Jesus used to help his disciples not lose hope. So let's read it together. Mark 4, verse 26 point out just a few things. He is making a comparison. Let me say this. Jesus does not interpret these parables for us. We have two of them here we're going to look at. Unlike the parable of the soils where he later interprets that for us so we know exactly what it means, he does not interpret he interpreted for his disciples of that we're clear according to Mark, but it's not recorded for us. And so that means that it lends itself to all types of interpretation from men who are sometimes more earnest about getting the right accurate translation and others who maybe are not so concerned about that and use this passage to mean things that it was never intended to mean. And that's why I tell you about the context. Because the context drives the meaning. It helps us understand what's going on and what Jesus intended to By these words. So, said all that. He's making a comparison, according to the text, to the kingdom of God. You cannot forget that. It is the kingdom of God that he is illustrating in some way. The kingdom of God is a real, physical kingdom. I just want to show you a passage real quick. Turn to Daniel. That's in the Old Testament. If you're using the church Bible, page 745. You're going to turn back to the left. Daniel chapter 7. I'm not going to explain this passage. I just want you to know it's there. Daniel was a prophet who foresaw into the future by God's enablement, and he speaks of this coming kingdom. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, page 745. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, that is a reference to the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Look up or down. Look over to the other side to to verse 27. Skip to verse 27. And it says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom, their kingdom, shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey them. Turn back to Mark. Chapter 4, page 839. This kingdom is a real kingdom. It's not a fantasy world. It is not just a spiritual kingdom, but a real physical kingdom with real inhabitants. People that live in the kingdom, who rule and reign over the earth. That is what Jesus is talking to the people about right now. So we need to we need to recognize that first. It is a real kingdom of God and has significance based on what the Old Testament says about it. And he's comparing it to the growth of seed. <laughs> Something that his disciples would have been very familiar with, right? Because they grew up in an agricultural context. We've talked about this before. To the city folk like you and I, we don't know a lot about seed. We don't regularly use seed. But they did. And they understood these pictures. So the idea here is of using common pictures that would be clear to the people so he might compare them to something else that was not so clear so they could understand the unclear thing. The unclear thing to them right now is the kingdom of God. They are and will be confused until Jesus continues to reveal these truths about the kingdom. Remember, as I said earlier, that as a result of the nation's rejection of the kingdom of God, It was going to be delayed. Its coming would be delayed. We know this now. Okay? We know this. We know the kingdom of God is not on earth because unrighteousness does not survive in the kingdom of God. So we know it's not here. It is not here in all its glory and power as it was described in the Old Testament. Jesus is not sitting on the throne of David right now, ruling and reigning on this earth, in that sense, in the literal sense of the kingdom of God. But the disciples lived then. They did not live now. They would slowly learn that the kingdom would not be established at Jesus' first coming, but at His second. They would have to come to grips with that. Now, for you and I, this is, this is like waking up on Christmas morning as a young child. And you know, as a young child, do you remember those days when Christmas was a lot of fun because you were so excited about and thinking and knowing and hoping and anticipating and dreaming and slobbering a little bit for the toys that you were hoping you would get on Christmas morning? Not everyone had that experience, but many do. And then you get up and mom and dad say, Nope, not today. it's not coming today. uh it's going to come all those all those things you were hoping for and anticipating they're going to come by the way, we're not going to tell you specifically when, but you can be certain that those things are going to come. You'll have everything that you hoped for and dreamed about crushed they would be crushed, and his disciples were going to have to go through this experience they were expecting. Now, now, Jesus, the kingdom. No, the nation has rejected me as their king. Standing at the moments before the cross, they say to Caesar, we have no king but Caesar. That's what they said. They rejected their king and sent him to be crucified. So let's look at the verses together here. Verse 27, and let's start to break down some of this agriculture that's going on. He, it says that he, verse 27, he, the farmer, sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The farmer sleeps and rises night and day does not mean he is unemployed or lazy. Okay? That doesn't mean that. But Here's what it means. After the seed is scattered, he continues on in his daily responsibilities. That's all it's saying. He rises, he he sleeps, he rises night and day. He's continuing on his daily responsibilities, waiting now on the seed to do what it will do on its own. He's cast the seed. Now it's a period of waiting. But he continues on with his responsibilities of farming. He cannot make it happen any faster or bring the results sooner. For he doesn't even understand exactly how the process works. See, the reality that life springs from seed is a mystery to him, and I would say to you is still, to many and the scientific world, is still a mystery how life is contained in seed, and from it something grows. But he knows, having gone through the process of farming before, that the seed that is planted will produce a crop. That's the picture. He doesn't know, again, how it works exactly, but he's confident that the seed that he cast will produce a crop. So he goes about his business, waiting. Then it says in verse 28, let's look at that, the earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. The earth produces by itself. What begin as seed sprouts and grows in stages, each stage being necessary in the growth process. In other words, no stage can be skipped. To get from seed to harvest, the plant has to go through stages. Eventually, it will reach the final stage where it is ready to be harvested. I know you guys are thinking, is this what I came to church for? But this is the picture Jesus uses. And I'll, I'll help you understand what's going on here in a second. This is the picture. It made sense to them, or it would make sense, when Jesus put the two together, the kingdom and the seed growing as it is expected to. The text says that it does this all by itself. This could literally be translated without visible cause. Without visible cause. The word, the Greek word that is used here, Automate, I think is how you pronounce it. T, it is A-U-T-O-M-A-T-E in the English. Does that sound familiar to you? It's where we get the our English word for automatic. Same word, automatic. You know like an automatic transmission? Right? For those of you who drive automatics, you don't change the gears. That's why I hate automatics. See, you have nothing to do with... With the, I love drive, that's not true, but I love driving a stick shift because you are interacting with the vehicle and you make it go from 10 to 65, right? <laughs> in an automatic, in an automatic, it does it for you. You have no power. It's doing it. The process is happening automatically. That's why we refer to it as an automatic transmission. In the same way, independent of the farmer, independent of the farmer, the seed continues to grow until maturity. It is happening by itself, automatically. Verse 29. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. When the plant, on its own, has completed its growth cycle, then and only then is it ready for the patient farmer to harvest what he has been anticipating and waiting for. Then and only then. This image of gathering the harvest, which we see here, Mark puts it this way, he puts in the sickle, it's a figure of speech that they understood. It means you send forth the reapers. And reapers, maybe we don't know what that means, but those are just the guys that took sickles in their hands and went into the field, which the sickle was just a device that was curved and was sharp and it had a handle, and they would cut and remove the grain, the fruit from the field, the harvest. So he says, they put in the sickle, they gather the crop. That imagery is also used in the parable that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 13 called the parable of the wheat and the tares. That parable is not included in Mark because Mark does not record every parable that Jesus used. In fact, he tells us that he used and these are one of the many parables according to Mark chapter 4 verse 33 in other words we don't have all of them recorded so we look at all the gospels and we can get a fuller picture of every parable that Jesus was using but specifically i want to want you to look at or at least here Matthew chapter 13 i'm going to read a couple of sections from this parable regarding the imagery of harvest he says in 1330 let both grow together he's talking about the wheat In the tares. And what he's talking about there, he explains it later without reading all the text. The wheat are those who believe in Jesus Christ. The tares or the weeds are those that are in the church, the visible church, but they are really not part of the church. They are unbelievers. They are pretenders. They are self deceived, whatever. He says, let both of those grow together. Until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, the tares, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then in 39, he explains this parable, just like he did the parable of the soils. Beginning in the second part of 39, chapter 13, he says, the harvest, now he's going to explain it, The harvest is the close of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, pain, suffering. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. One writer says this. The harvest, in regard to this parable, the harvest will be at the end of the age. At the end of the age, that's what the Lord said at the close of the age. When the Son of Man comes. Do you remember that title? The Son of Man? We read it a few minutes ago in Daniel chapter 7. It is the title that Jesus Christ took to Himself. He called Himself the Son of Man, and it has significance. It was the Son of Man who would be given the authority to rule and reign over a kingdom on earth. He would come, He would establish His kingdom on earth by means of a harvest judgment in which the lawless will be taken away, those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ or turned to Him, And the righteous, those that are right with God through Jesus Christ, will be made to shine forth as the sun in that kingdom. Okay. So what is Jesus communicating to his fragile followers in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29, the passages we just read? And it is this, based on everything we just talked about. Just as the seed's growth to maturity is automatic... And as a result, its future harvest is certain. So is the coming harvest and establishment of the kingdom. It is that simple. It is that simple. This certitude should encourage them and give them confidence in spite of the apparent rejection and failure they were seeing. In a sense, to them the kingdom was failing so that they would continue to witness in Christ's name. See, ultimately, beloved, the disciples would look upon the one they had been following and see Him hanging on a cross, dying. That would that would shake them to the core about what they believed about the kingdom. If, if, if that's the king and he's supposed to come in power, why is he dying on the cross? They needed to understand the kingdom would come when he returned again, this time not as a baby, but a sovereign king and judge to enforce his rule. His righteous rule on earth and to judge all those who have rejected Him during this period of time. The kingdom will in the future certainly become a reality on earth. That's what the parable is teaching. And the process has already been set in motion. Just like the seed, there is no stopping it. There is no stopping it. It is... Automatic. And so he is telling them, you got to continue on in the work I have given you until the harvest is ready. Don't back down. Don't lose your confidence because the kingdom has not been established. But know its certainty is yet future. One writer says, like the patient farmer, Jesus is supremely confident in the coming kingdom. Though beset by opposition from religious leaders and misunderstanding from followers, Jesus is not disheartened, distraught, or desperate. He is not. He is cool and confident. Nor should there be anxiety among His disciples. He's preparing them. He's preparing them. I like what this writer says. One day, perhaps when we look back from God's throne on the last day, we shall say with amazement and surprise, if I had ever dreamed when I stood at the graves of my loved ones and everything seemed to be ended, if I had ever dreamed when I saw the specter of atomic war creeping upon us, if I had ever dreamed when I faced the meaningless fate of an endless imprisonment or a malignant disease. If I had ever dreamed that God was only carrying out His design and plan through all these woes, that in the midst of my cares and troubles and despair, His harvest was ripening, and that everything was pressing on toward His last kingly day. If I had known this, I would have been more calm and confident. Yes, then I would have been more cheerful and far more tranquil and composed if I had only dreamed. So that's the first illustration, the growth of the seed. And the second one is the unexpected growth of the mustard seed. And this is fast and quick and very simple. Look at Mark chapter 4, verse 30 through 32. And he said, that is Jesus, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests In its shade. So now Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. Why? Does he want to give his disciples a lesson in botany? Is that what he's doing? No. The emphasis here is contrast. That's the emphasis. There's a contrast between the overwhelming size of this plant and its incredible smallness when it begins. The mustard seed, beloved, was the smallest of the seeds sown in the fields in Palestine. It was the smallest of the seeds that the farmers used in Palestine. It was commonly referenced to refer to something small. In other words, they would say, man, that's as big as a mustard seed. And that would mean it's not very big at all. It would be the same as me saying, she's as small as a twig. And you would know that I'm not thinking that she's a stick, but that she looks small. Similar to a stick. She's very thin, right? In the same way, they would use it. They would refer to things as mustard seeds because it was known for its smallness. In fact, I know you guys aren't farmers, so let me give you some information. It takes 725 to 760 mustard seeds to weigh a gram. And there are 28 grams in an ounce. It's really small. The size of a mustard seed is about the size of a grain of sand. So it's the smallest of the seeds that they were using. You would never expect that something that begins so tiny, like the grain of sand, would grow into a bush topping 10 to 12 feet and be larger than all the other vegetable or garden plants in its class. Beyond that, it grows so large... And its branches extend out that even birds, plural, were able to take up residence within its canopy. That's, that's all he's saying. He's, he's making a comparison. The kingdom of God is, is like this mustard seed. You guys, you know a mustard seed. It's the tiniest thing that you guys put in the ground. And it grows up yet to be one of the largest plants in the gender of plants or the vegetable garden. 10 to 12 feet. You would never expect that to happen. Never. So Jesus' point here is not meant to be complicated or mystical. He's just just a good communicator. He's taking illustrations that the people would relate to to help them understand what they, they yet don't know. The reality of the kingdom is different than what they expected. That its coming would be different. He says, remember this, basically. Or, it, I'm going to give you this illustration of the kingdom of God, and this writer says, it contrasts the insignificant beginning of God's kingdom. Remember, he said the mustard seed is like the kingdom of God. It contrasts that, embodied in the presence of Jesus Christ, very insignificant, with the greatness of the end result to be established at His second coming when it will surpass all the earth's kingdoms in power and glory. Just like that mustard seed, it starts off very insignificant, but when it grows, it surpasses all of the other plants in its realm, growing 10 to 12 feet, towering over them. One writer says this, The day will come when the kingdom of God will surpass in glory the mightiest kingdoms on the earth. For it is the consequence of God's sovereign action. When the glory of that manifestation breaks forth before men, they will be as startled as the man who considers the tiny mustard seed and the mighty shrub. That's what he's saying. That's what he's telling them. You guys think... You may perceive how could the kingdom be so great when it's starting so insignificantly. Don't make that mistake. Remember the mustard seed. It will be powerful and glorious, more magnificent than you could ever have expected considering its insignificance in the beginning. Beloved, Jesus the King did not come to this earth the first time with a mighty army. He did not do that. That's what you would expect for a king. When we watch any of those old movies, kings always brought along their armies, massive armies, and took over other nations, right? But when he comes again to establish his kingdom on earth, he will be bringing one with him. An army of believers, according to Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Made up of people from every tribe and every nation who have been made citizens of His kingdom by placing their faith in the King. In the King. Now, what do you do with all this? You know? For His disciples, it would have been very important. But this is what I do with this. This is what I have done with this this week. Very Timely for me. Maybe it will be for you. Like the disciples during Jesus' ministry on earth, like them, we are susceptible to losing heart by doubting or just forgetting about the coming reality of the kingdom or underestimating its future dominion and power and greatness and glory. In light of the constant stream of negative news and the appearance, beloved, that sin is winning the day. I have to bring myself back to reality that the kingdom is coming and nothing can stop it and it will be more glorious and powerful than I could ever imagine. Just in this last week, this is just... Me talking to you now, this last week, I was thinking through some things. I was reading through my, these are examples of how I sometimes get overwhelmed and even become depressed and discouraged. And I have to bring myself back under the Word of God and remember, even if things look like they're absolutely out of control and unrighteousness is ruling and reigning, <laughs> there is a day coming. Here's Reader's Digest, right? I get it. I read it. It's a great bathroom book. <laughs> the stories are short. <laughs> this is this is the reality of what's... This has uh, a subscription or uh, circulation of 10 million, 70 million worldwide. A lot of people are influenced by this. They're reducing their uh, subscription here in the U.S. a little bit, but... They want to write about spiritual things now. So they're talking about this lady. She comes and she's talking about the, the center they want to put near ground zero. You know all the controversy over that? She's a Muslim. She's talking about she doesn't understand what the big deal is because actually Americans should embrace this. And here's why she says that. Muslims from all over the world come here and make this proclamation that America is the most Islamic country in the world. That should catch your eye. Because America lives up to this ideal that God has created different religions. Uh, Okay, maybe America does that. I I don't agree with that. Not at all. In fact, the Bible's very clear. Satan is the one creating multiple religions and God is very clear that there is one way to him through Jesus Christ. Goes farther, it says, from the Islamic perspective. I don't know what she's talking about because... This is not true of fundamental Islam or the book of Koran. I'm very familiar with it. Read many passages from it. She says, from the Islamic perspective, freedom to worship is part of the divine plan. And then she quotes a poet, which is always dangerous. He says that God is like an ocean and religions are like rivers that all flow into the same ocean. Our origins are the same and our destinations are the same. It is our past that sometimes differ. Okay, that's just one thing I've read this week. And it reminds me of the many encounters I've had with people, even those who claim to follow Christ, who are now being persuaded that Christianity is not the only way, and that there are multiple ways to the same God. That it, Aren't they all the same after all? And it it discourages me. It discourages me because the Bible is very clear. He says, I am, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life to the Father, and no one comes to Him except through me. And so if, if the poet is right, then Christianity is a lie because Jesus is a liar. There's just no way around it. And it, it doesn't bother me so much that unbelievers say that, but the world is starting to embrace that. Even the world of Christianity is starting to say we need to be tolerant, and we need to accept all other religions as passed to God. No. Then I'm wasting my time. That's one. Then just some stuff from our... And you'll relate to this. You know, there's a new show that came on recently. MTV. You should know right away, if MTV's producing it, it's unrighteous. Called Skins. I don't... I haven't viewed it. All I know is because I watch news just like you and I look at my MSN and I see the updates. But that's a show about sex, drugs, and teenagers and how they all share that together. And so this, there was an outrage to it and they called it child pornography. And so people raised that issue and said you shouldn't, shouldn't be allowed on TV. I just found it interesting. Taco Bell was a sponsor of the show. But when people called and got upset about the show, then Taco Bell decided, ah, maybe it's not a good idea. It's sad to me, it burdens me that a corporation like Taco Bell, they knew what it was. The only reason they're pulling out their sponsorship now is because they think they might lose the almighty dollar. But they were willing to put their name behind it along with many others. And the fact that that show had 3 million viewers on opening day, it kills me. It kills me. Stuff like that. How about this movie called No Strings Attached? No Strings Attached. You know, it'll probably be a blockbuster. It's a romantic comedy about what? A man and a woman who can have a physical relationship of sexual nature without any emotional attachment. Right? That's the whole idea. And eventually they, I don't know, I guess they fall in love or something. But what killed me was this. The commercial comes on. Yes, I watch TV. The commercial comes on, and and here it goes. They, it's showing the image, and the couple are doing their thing in the room, and their roommate knocks on the door and says, could you keep it down in there? Okay, so they're fornicating, and it's good. And by the way, what's special about this movie is the girl is is the one asking to have this relationship with no feelings attached, which is very unusual, right? Because usually it's the guy who wants that but it's actually the girl. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Girls are just like guys now. So, so they're in the room. They're doing their thing. The guy knocks. He says, keep it down because I can't concentrate on my porno. See, and pornography, I guarantee it. It's in this room. I guarantee it. I know it. Statistically, men, there's men in this room that will go home today and turn on their computers or at work and they will engage in this awful, terrible thing that kills families. I have counseled one after another of divorcees, divorcees. And many, many times it has something to do with pornography. It starts small, and then it grows up. It leads to an affair. Oh, yeah, isn't that a funny thing, watching pornography? Isn't that funny? And you watch one family fall after another. I get discouraged, beloved. Glee. House. Grey's Anatomy. Three very popular shows on television. And here's what's happening. Every show. 12 million viewers, guys. Every show introduces this particular aspect. Homosexuality. And homosexuality should be tolerated and more than tolerated, embraced and accepted. And you know what? I've told my wife... Every time I see that, I tell her, it's just a matter of time. It's a matter of time because the people that are presented on the show, they are nice people because you know what? Being a homosexual doesn't make you mean or ugly or a monster. You're just sinning, just like the adulterer is sinning or the liar is sinning. It doesn't make you a monster. But what they're doing is presenting it as acceptable, right, and even good. And so it'll be a matter of time before speech from the Bible against that particular sin will be considered hate speech. See, it's just a matter of time. And then, of course, there's always the false teachers. And our television is filled with one teacher after another, and this is probably burdens me the most. I saw a guy, he's very popular, 20,000, 25,000 come through his church. You know Mark chapter 4? Remember about the soils? Remember we talked about that? Remember we looked at the text together? He is somehow able to stand up before that massive congregation and tell them that that's about money. If you take your faith seed and plant it into the right soil, it'll bring back to you 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And then he says to them, listen, I'll stop talking about money when everyone comes back wealthy. Then I'll know I can move on to something else and people embrace it and they applaud and they give their money to this man and he has houses and jets and yeah and that's no no wonder because the bible says in timothy that in the last days men will be lovers of money and then people having itching ears will find these teachers to satisfy their lust and desires hey listen i want money i'll find a man who says he's a man of God, who justifies my lust for money. And now I can feel good about it. So I said all that. And maybe you've experienced some of this too. This overwhelming flood of of righteousness. And if that's not enough, beloved, I have my own sin to deal with. I have my own issues and my own fight against my lust and my desires. So, for me to remember that the righteous kingdom of God is coming. That it will be established. And all of this stuff will be put away, will be crushed by the righteous ruler one day. It is the only thing that gives me the hope and the confidence to continue on, to continue my fight against sin and my call to sinners to come out of their sin to make preparation for that righteous King who is coming. And I hope that will do that for you too. We are out of time. Let me close in prayer.